0: This morning, um, we pick up the story in Ezekiel. Please turn your Bibles or open your apps to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. As we leave Jeremiah in our flyby series on the prophets, we also leave The promised land, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. We leave with the last two remaining tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, and we go with them into captivity in Babylon. As you may recall, the northern kingdom of Israel falls in 721 BC to Assyria, utterly destroyed. And about a hundred years later, Babylon shows up and in 605 B.C., deports many prominent Judeans, among them Daniel, the prophet, and his friends. Babylon comes back eight years later and deports many more, including Ezekiel, who as a priest is among the nobles or learned in Judah. And then finally, in 586 B.C., Babylon returns angry, putting down a failed revolt of the puppet king at the time who rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar against the advice of both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Not a good move to mess with Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back and levels... Judea levels Jerusalem, levels God's temple, and all the rest, all but the poorest of the poor are taken away into captivity. And in 586 B.C., because of her sinful choices. God's beloved children of Israel, their nation, is no more. It's not even a puppet state. And his, what at the time seemed like a great experiment with choosing Israel to witness him to the world, seems to come to a dead end. And into that mix, our next prophet up, Ezekiel, steps in right into the middle of this history. As I said, Ezekiel is a priest. He's deported to Babylon in 597. He receives his call as a prophet five years later while in exile. And so he begins his prophetic ministry in Babylon some years before Jerusalem finally falls. Most of the book of Ezekiel then takes place in Babylon, but before Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed and the rest of the Jews join the others there in Babylon. Of some interest here, just um, passing along the way, as a side note, uh, most scholars conclude that the reference to 30 years in the first verse of Ezekiel is uh, Ezekiel's age. He's 30 years old when he receives his call to be a prophet. That's the age, according to Torah, when a priest could assume his full duties as a priest, as an intercessor between God's people and God. Ezekiel's a priest, but he's away from the temple, so God retasks his priestly duties as prophet. And it's interesting to note in this context, too, I think that um, almost every scholar places Jesus at or at least around 30 years old when he begins his adult ministry. Starting point, perhaps, officially his baptism. And Jesus being 30 at this point may also be a direct relationship to that same age requirement in Torah when a priest could assume his full duties as a priest. Certainly a, a huge point in the New Testament is Jesus' role as priest, as high priest, as, as the intercessor pleading the case of the people to God. This priestly aspect of Jesus, uh, especially emphasized in Hebrews and so perhaps Jesus' age, when he begins his ministry, is intended to even further emphasize his role as priest, the high priest. In any event, one day, Ezekiel is sitting there in Babylon along the banks of a small stream or canal. River is too strong a word. He's sitting on the banks of a canal that empties into the mighty Euphrates River in Babylon. And Ezekiel sees something, experiences something remarkable. And speaking of too weak of words, remarkable is too weak, as is any word I can come up with in the English language for what Ezekiel experiences extraordinary. Overwhelming, wondrous, amazing, incredible, shocking. And what he sees is not only remarkable in and of itself, it's remarkable, as we'll see in a minute, but it's also especially remarkable because of where it is that he sees and has this experience deep within enemy territory, deep within Babylon. There is no way to any careful biblical reader, at least up to this point in the Bible, there's no way that Ezekiel should see what he sees in Babylon. There's no way he should experience what he experiences anywhere but in Jerusalem and in the temple. But he sees what he sees and experiences what he experiences that day sitting along the banks of that canal in Babylon. But Ezekiel sees it in Babylon. It's dumbfounding that he sees it there. And so it's no coincidence in my mind that Ezekiel opens his massive book with the telling of this story of what he sees. Want to hear what he sees? Yeah, me too. I don't have the words on the screen this morning. I'd just like you to hear uh, the word of God this morning. I apologize not to put it up there, but sometimes we can get lost in the text. I, I'd like for you, even if you would, uh, close your eyes. Years ago, there was that kids' show, right, Romper Room, where she looks in that mirror. Okay, I've really dated myself there. But go ahead, close your eyes, and I want you to, if you can imagine, you've been five years in exile in a foreign land. For whatever reason, you've wandered away from the nearby exile community of Tel Aviv, and you're sitting along the banks of this canal it's a, it's a lonely picture. Some have guessed maybe he went there to pray. The Jews had a practice of going near running water, living water, the sound of God's voice, to, to communicate with him and to pray, but we don't know for sure what he's doing there. But there he is. There you are, sitting on the sides of this bank. And listen to what... You there, maybe, if you were Ezekiel, would have experienced. Listen to Ezekiel's words. I looked, he writes, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. I was so excited that there was a windstorm last night. (laughs) Can you feel it yet, shaking the windows of your house? I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. you see it? The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. And their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox, each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings, their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. And the appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. And fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. And the creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. Can you picture it? As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. And this was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, The wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was In the wheels, must have made an impression on Ezekiel. He gives us that twice. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, a platform of sorts, a dividing plane. And it sparkled like ice, and it was awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings." Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. So the thing stops. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne, a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of the one speaking. This is the very word of God. Amen. Wow! Is remarkable too weak a word? Can you imagine? As we might imagine, lots of artists have tried to capture Ezekiel's vision here. I've looked through dozens of pictures this week, and all of them uh, awe-inspiring as you can try to picture it and see it. I picked one of my favorites, at least, to show you. See if they... I mean, look at that thing. Can you imagine? There you're sitting on the banks of that small stream. I don't know what you're doing. Praying, perhaps. Kicking stones in there. Reflecting. He's alone. And all of a sudden, that thing blows in. And wind Maybe you grab your robe around you because it starts to get away from you. It's so strong. And a thunder and lightning and fire and brilliance flashing everywhere. And on top of it all, that fiery-looking one over the brilliant sapphire throne starts talking to you. I mean, can you imagine? You probably remember that, yeah? Now, I'm sure some of you, as I was reading those verses, something clicked in you, and you say, hey, I've heard that picture before. That occurred to anyone in here? Nobody. (laughs) Where does it also appear in the Bible, that thing? At least in very close form. Revelation, doesn't it? Chapter 4. John's vision of the very throne room of God. There's no question in my mind that John in writing Revelation and trying to find the words to describe something that defies words draws upon Ezekiel and Zechariah to communicate that what he's seeing there is the same thing that his people knew and John knew all too well Ezekiel saw that day in Babylon. Very close description. Should suggest to us that if we do a study on the book of Revelation, we ought first to do a study on Ezekiel and Zechariah, two lenses through which to look at and understand Revelation. But like in Revelation 4, this picture of The glory of God is one of his immense power, sovereign control, omnipresence, In a word perhaps that captures all of that, God's holiness, his utter and complete, special and distinct nature. Folks, there is no one like him, not anyone, not know-how, no one. And like in Revelation, That picture is meant to inspire hope. Hope in a people in painful circumstances. Don't give up. God, this powerful God, still sits on the throne. Despite painful circumstances, this thing hasn't somehow gotten away from him. Oh! Shouldn't do that to the Bible. It's not like God dropped the ball or his word. He's still there in powerful, sovereign control. And don't give up because this God who's still on the throne is still on your side doing everything he can to meet you there and be with you there and relieve you from and rescue from your painful circumstance. Don't give up, Ezekiel. Look! Look at the one who still sits on the throne. And here we have in Ezekiel, in this picture, two seemingly conflicting but biblically recurring themes especially here in Ezekiel and in Revelation. We'll get there in a minute. And the first of those themes is, I'll call it, the holiness of God. Or if you're a theologian, or if you play one on TV, God's transcendence. Something we talked about last year at this time, if you were here, God is separate and distinct and different from his creation. He is oh so one of a kind and so infinitely different than anything or anyone. He's holy. And one key aspect of his holiness, who he is, this separate, distinct, one of a kind being, one key aspect of it in particular is that he does not and cannot have anything to do with evil or with sin. And Ezekiel emphasizes this separateness of God in order to show that, among other things, you know, God doesn't want to send his people into exile. He gets no delight in it. He hates it, in fact. And he's weeping right along with them. He doesn't bring this judgment willingly. I don't think God brings any judgment willingly. And God would, if he could, remain with his however sinful people in his temple in Jerusalem. It's still standing there. Part of the shock that it showed up here. But it's come to a point where he simply can't any longer. He cannot because he is holy. And so the sinful choices of his people, their idolatry, their oppression of the poor, force him to leave. And so in effect, force him to cleanse his people through this, however, painful experience of exile. And why? Why would he bother? Because he loves them so much, I can't even describe how much, that he can't even bear the thought of being away from them. He loves them so much, so much that he'll do anything he can, so once again he can be with them again. We miss that when we talk about that hard word to our ears called judgment. The ultimate goal of God's judgment against Israel his ultimate goal is to bring his people and all the nations through her, for that matter, to know him again, that intimate knowing again, to invite them once again to choose him back since they've chosen to go their own way and forced him to leave. And God's otherness and distance and transcendence from us and humanity is further emphasized in Ezekiel by that use of the title Son of Man. God calls Ezekiel Son of Man. That title is used 93 times in Ezekiel, only once or twice in Daniel. The Daniel one gets all the attention because that's what Jesus is referring to when he's alluding to his own divinity, Daniel chapter 7. But Ezekiel uses this title 93 times and In Ezekiel, the title's meant to convey and stress Ezekiel's mere humanity. I don't know if you've noticed when you've read Ezekiel before, but it jumps out from you. You know, God does not once call Ezekiel by his name. Never calls him Ezekiel. It's always son of man. You feel that distance that's being emphasized there, God's holiness? Even in that detail, you feel that tone set of God being so separate and and distant, the transcendence of the great I am from Ezekiel and from all humanity. This distance that the people's choice, first in Genesis 3, created between humanity and a holy God, right? When Adam and Eve sinned. That scene is... Effectively played out here again in history with Israel in exile and with Ezekiel. Israel's choice to pursue other gods and oppress the poor. This unfathomable distance between a sinful people and God is deeply felt again throughout Ezekiel. And yet, or to use a well-known Dutch expression, yeah, but, there's that other seemingly conflicting theme in Ezekiel as well. Theologians label it God's eminence, but you can also call it God's love. His love is one aspect of his intimate eminence. Both are in play. And it's the most remarkable thing about this vision that Ezekiel sees, the most unexpected part. And it leaps from the pages of Ezekiel chapter one. In fact, Ezekiel's vision here still today gives fits to modern-day Jewish scholars, presents a real problem for them. And that's because of where Ezekiel's vision takes place. For here we have, deep in the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures, deep in the heart of the Old Testament, God's holy, separate, distinct, can't-have-anything-to-do-with-sin presence, supposedly in the still-standing temple miles away in Jerusalem, Nevertheless, with the exiles in Babylon. How in heaven's name is he here? In Babylon, it's unprecedented. But there he is on that remarkable hovercraft thing. Let's bring that up again. In Babylon, I mean, holy Moses... And that's a really appropriate expression there because that's just it. For centuries, ever since Moses in Sinai, some seven centuries ago, when God made his covenant with Israel to marry her, God's presence was with his people in the tabernacle, on the ark, in the temple. And nevertheless, God shows up. He blows in to find a lonely forgotten man sitting on the sides of a stream in the heart of Babylon, miles away from the temple. Here I am anyway, Ezekiel. Here I am anyway, my beloved people. Still with my marvelous plans for you, as Jeremiah is telling them back in Jerusalem even now, Here I am, waiting for, desperate for your change of heart. Ready to reestablish my intimate presence with you. I'm right here, hovering, as I did over creation. Ready to recreate again. Waiting for your change of heart. Your sin may have chased me away, but you can't shake me. I love you too much. Here I am waiting for your change of heart, deep in enemy territory. You know, he still does that today. Jesus puts it this way. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him And he with me. Where's that scripture from, by the way? Revelation. Revelation, What chapter? (gasps) What chapter does that thing show up in Revelation? Right next to each other in Revelation, we get this beautiful, intimate picture of our Savior humbly standing and waiting at a door, knocking and waiting for our change of heart immediately before this picture of oh. And in Ezekiel we have a lonely man deep in the heart of enemy territory with a God who's beyond almighty comes to him And it may be a little different for believers today in exile because he's not only knocking, he's already living in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But my friends, he still may knock from within, if you will, if we've made poor choices and wandered away and forget about him and turned from him. Knocking and waiting, hovering, wanting to embrace us again, but unable to do so because He honors our choice and because He's holy, push Him away with our sinful choices. Maybe God is waiting on you today. I know He's waiting on me. In lots of areas in my life. Whether you know Him as your Lord and Savior yet or not, wherever you are, as between you and God and your relationship with Him in your process of salvation, wherever you are, this picture of this immensely powerful God who nevertheless comes and humbly waits. And relentlessly knocks and pursues you out of love, it still holds today. Either to know Him for the first time as the Lord and Savior of your life, or to come back to Him if you've wandered away in some areas of your life. There He is, waiting. And so, what are we waiting for? 1 P.S. and then I need to let you go. Ezekiel, you find when you read um, his book, he's very prone to withdraw, withdrawal in silence. He's easily, in my opinion, the most eccentric prophet that we have. He makes Elijah and Elisha look normal. <laughs> he has some crazy things. I'll give some... Opinion next week on why I think that might be that God chose someone like Ezekiel for this purpose. But he's prone to withdrawal in silence. Look at his reaction right after having this remarkable experience. Look at what he says. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kabar River, and there, where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, overwhelmed. Now at first blush, and we might be right, we might think, well, yeah, who wouldn't be? That's proper reverence and response to this remarkable, awe-inspiring experience. And maybe that could be part of it, but maybe not all of it, because look at what God does After Ezekiel just sits there for seven days, the very next verse. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman. And as a watchman, what do you do? Yeah, you watch. But (laughs) if you're watching over a flock of sheep, a picture Ezekiel uses later. And you see danger coming to it. You take steps, right? Say, look out. I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. Reminded of the apostles who after Jesus ascends to heaven just sit there looking. Then the angel has to come back and say, what are you waiting for? And God does this several times to Ezekiel, who's prone to be silent. Maybe he doesn't like to speak. He's certainly a difficult writer. Now I'm getting into why it may be that he does what he does to communicate. It may be God meeting this man here who doesn't like to use words. And so he does crazy stuff like build Plato, Jerusalem's. what you'll see. God does the waiting for his people to have a change of heart because he loves them so much. Our job is to go tell people about that. We're not supposed to wait. Life is too short. You never know how much time we have, do you? Most of you here, I would guess, know the story of God and his love and the danger of sin and where that leads. When's the last time you told somebody about it or did something in love to someone in the name of Jesus? It's time to go. And it's time to go. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for this remarkable picture that you give twice, at least in the text. This picture of this amazing, movable throne room. This picture, not only of your immense power and sufficiency in yourself and Your need of nothing or no one or know how because you're that great and that almighty and that perfect. But at the same time, the picture of how in even who you are, you desperately crave, even need us in close, intimate relationship with you. So deep, so great is your love. A love, Father, that drove you finally to take upon yourself the harshest judgment of all. That drove you to step down from high above that platform sitting in rainbow radiance on that sapphire throne to actually become a human being and to suffer death because you love us that much. Oh, Father, today we sit here as we know you indwelled by all the power and intimacy of that picture. Have we forgotten the wonder of that, of what it means to have that almighty of a God love us that much that he even dwells within us? Forgive us when we forget and we don't appreciate the wonder of that event as being even 10,000 times more remarkable than what Ezekiel and John saw and experienced. Give us again that passion to go and tell people about your love. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for his benediction, God's words? In my opinion, Ezekiel both opens his book and closes his book with similar bookends. At the end of Ezekiel, he's going on and on and on about the restored city of God when he brings his people back. And he's telling them there's going to be all these gates to the city and it's going to be named after all the tribes and it's going to be so many cubits by so many cubits. It's going to be great. And then in the very last verse, listen to what he says. And the city... From that time on, will be the Lord is there. In Hebrew, YHWH Shema, which may be a word play on the Hebrew pronunciation of Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim, Jerusalem means city of peace. Yavesh Shema means the Lord is there. Hmm. Yerushalayim, because Yavesh Shema. City of peace, finally, because the Lord is there. May we all go now in peace, because my brothers and sisters, The Lord indeed goes with us. In Jesus' name, amen.